So Easter, Easter, talking about Jesus. Easter is all about Jesus. Jesus coming into the world, the world he created. John chapter 1 tells us everything that has been made was made through him. So Jesus made it all. And then he came to this imperfect place and walked around in it, grew up in it, began his public life when he was about 30 years old, began to teach. And as he taught, uh, he went to see a relative of his, John the Baptist, as John was out preaching himself and had gained a following. And as Jesus walked up, John the Baptist says, that's the guy I'm preaching about. That's the Son of God. And so some of John's followers began to follow Jesus. And then Jesus began to amass a following. And among that following, he pulled out 12 individuals and said, y'all are going to be my closest. Y'all are going to be my, what he called, apostles. The word in the original language, that means sent out with a message. I'm going to give you a message to go out and do something with it. And so he draws out these 12 and begins to invest in these 12 in a powerful way. And he spends several years now with these 12 specifically as he would go out and he would teach and he would preach and he would start doing miracles and he would heal people, heal people with leprosy as they had this terrible skin disease with, uh, that would break out on their skin, sometimes body parts falling off, terribly painful, and he would heal these people. He would find other people who were blind and he would heal them. Find other people who uh, had been lame their entire life, never able to walk. So their muscles didn't even exist. They were just so atrophied. So he would create muscle in the moment and then build into the muscle, the muscle memory, to figure out how to walk as he would heal these people. He would, uh, there was another occasion, he raised dead people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He was coming across this one city called Nain, and a funeral procession was coming out carrying a casket. And right out in front of the casket was the mother of the little boy who died. And Jesus walked up to the casket and put his hand on the casket, and the boy raised up out of the casket. Jesus did all these miracles, taught all this stuff for several years, all the while investing in his 12, to the point that he gets to the very end of those uh, couple of years, and he tells those 12, you guys are my friends. They've been together day in and day out, 24-7 nearly, for a couple of years. And they go back to Jerusalem. Jesus knowing all the while going back to Jerusalem would mean he was going to be executed. But he knew that was the whole reason he came. And they go and they spend that week there in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. Jesus continuing to teach. Jesus continuing to pour into his disciples. And it gets to Thursday evening. Late in the Thursday evening. Which for first century Jews was Friday because they didn't count the days from midnight to midnight. They counted the days from sundown to sundown. So as soon as it was dark on Thursday night, for them, that was Friday. And so for them, early Friday, for us, late Thursday, they have a Passover meal. And Jesus changes some of the, not changes, but uh, explains the fulfillment of some of the meaning of that Passover meal to his disciples, saying this was all about me coming and dying for all of your sins, me raising from the dead. And then Judas, right as they, they're getting into the meal, Judas gets up and leaves. Judas goes and finds the Jewish religious leaders and says, I 
will betray Jesus if you give me some money. And so they send a mob with Judas, and they're going to go and find Jesus now in the middle of the night and arrest him. Because those Jewish leaders weren't fans of Jesus. These guys knew scripture in and out, so they knew the Son of God was coming. They were anticipating the Son of God coming. But when the Son of God actually came, they didn't want to surrender any of the authority, any of the power, any of the responsibility that they had to Jesus. They didn't want Jesus, the Son of God, to look like Jesus, the Son of God, looked. To teach like Jesus, the Son of God, taught. And so they conspired to have him put to death. They get Judas on their side. Judas leads a mob out. Jesus finishes the Passover meal, has them break the bed and drink the cup, and then he takes them out. They sing a hymn, and they leave the upper room. It's middle of the night now, Thursday night, early Friday morning. They go out to the garden. Jesus prays a couple of times. Then the mob shows up with Judas, and Judas tells the mob, there he is. So they arrest Jesus, and his disciples, his closest friends, run scared for their lives. Scared that they would be next. Scared that they would be killed. And they run off into the garden to keep from getting caught themselves. These guards take Jesus to the home of the high priest where he has assembled the Jewish ruling council. And they're going to hold a trial for Jesus. But in doing this, they're also breaking their own rules, breaking their own bylaws. Because to hold a trial, they were supposed to hold it during the daytime. And they were supposed to hold it in the wide open so anybody could come and watch. But they were holding it at night in a locked house so nobody could see. They bring in a bunch of false witnesses, guys whose stories, as Gospels tell us, stories contradicted each other in what they're saying. Some guys were giving testimony about how Jesus broke the law, but their own stories didn't make sense, didn't uh, work out together. But the council there assembled says he's guilty. But not every, we know not everybody on the council voted that way, that some of them did not vote with the rest of the council, but the majority did. And so they did not have the authority to kill Jesus. So they're going to take Jesus to Pilate, the governor. Uh, but two of Jesus' disciples came back as Jesus is in the high priest's house, Peter and John. And Peter, in that process, denies that he even knows Jesus three times, his friend, his close friend. The, the one he believes, Peter believes, is the Son of God. He denies, basically, his faith in that moment. And when that realization hits Peter, he runs away weeping. And so at this point, disciples spread to the winds, except John, who's now following at a distance. Jesus is taken to Pilate, the governor. Pilate questions Jesus and says... This guy hadn't done anything wrong. He says, I really think they only have him here because they're jealous of him. But Pilate doesn't want any of this. He, he doesn't want to be in the middle of this issue. Because Pilate doesn't want to make a decision that would make the crowd mad. But he also doesn't want to make a decision that would make Caesar mad. And so he finds out Jesus is from a certain part of the area. And, and uh, the leader of that part of the area happened to be in town, Herod. So he sends Jesus over to Herod and says, maybe this will be Herod's problem and I don't have to deal with it. But Jesus getting to Herod, Jesus doesn't talk to Herod at all. He just stands there quiet. Herod keeps asking him questions. Herod keeps trying to figure stuff out and Jesus won't talk to him. So Herod just packs Jesus up and sends him back over to Pilate. And in the middle of some of this, Jesus is beaten over and over and over again. 
He's taken into Pilate again. Pilate questions him some more. Jesus has a conversation again with Pilate. Pilate says, in his mind, not out loud to Jesus, he's, he's trying to find a way to not have to put Jesus to death. So he remembers this ceremony that they would do every year at the Passover. They would release some prisoner. Most often it was a guy, you know, who hadn't done a whole lot of bad stuff. But Pilate, trying to get Jesus off, trying to let Jesus go, Pilate finds the worst guy in jail. The guy who's killed a bunch of people. Probably killed some of the family members of the people in the crowd. Brings out the murderer, brings out Jesus. Who do you want me to release? The guy who's killed some of your family members? Or this other guy who hadn't done anything wrong? And the chief priests and the, uh, the Pharisees and the ruling council of the Jews are there in the crowd and they get everybody to shout, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so Pilate knows that the real power of the Roman Empire isn't in just titles, it's in the people. He wants to appease the people. And so he says, okay, take him and crucify him. Gives the Jews the authority to crucify Jesus. And so they take Jesus and march him through the streets, having beaten him again. He's carrying his cross. He can't carry it. It's too heavy. Have you ever been so physically wounded or hurt that you can't do much? That you're almost passing out? Well, Jesus, carrying this cross, having been beaten so many times, can't carry it. So they grab a guy out of the crowd. Some people think in grabbing this guy out of the crowd, they were beating him too in humiliation. And this guy carries the cross outside the city for Jesus. They lay him out on the cross, Jesus. Nail him to it. Huge spikes. Pick up that cross. Drop it in the hole they dug. Fill in the hole. And there Jesus is, right outside town, displayed for everybody to see. This is what happens when you break the Roman law. Or, in Jesus' case, when you make some people mad. Or honestly, Jesus dying there on the cross was God's plan all along because he's paying for the sins of all of humanity. And he's dying there on that cross, quite possibly one of the most excruciating ways in the history of humanity to die because the Romans are really good at killing people. Oftentimes, crucifixion would last for days as they would try to make it drag out as long as possible. So Jesus, hanging there on the cross, losing his breath, blood, guts everywhere. He gives up his spirit, it says. He willingly dies. It says, it is finished. Cries with a loud voice and gives up his spirit and dies. And at this point, it's the middle of the afternoon on Friday. But an issue's coming. Because remember, the Jewish day starts at sundown. And Saturday for the Jew is Sabbath, holy day. So that meant if anybody was going to go to Jesus and bury him, they had to get it done before sundown. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to participate in the Sabbath activities. So one of the Jewish ruling council guys who most likely voted against killing Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, wealthy guy, goes to Pilate and says, give me the body so I can bury it. Quite possibly, money exchanged hands. He bribed Pilate, maybe. We don't really know. But Pilate grants him the authority to take Jesus' body and bury it. So he takes down Jesus' body, all the while rushing to get Jesus in the tomb before sundown. So they take Jesus and get him to the tomb. 
and they don't have time to do all the proper burial. So they wrap him in the burial clothes, which would have included the big linen piece and, and, and would have uh, 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 some, some ties. They would have tied it off and a separate head covering. And they get him in there and they get that on there. They didn't have time to do all the perfumes and lotions and stuff that sometimes they would pour down uh, on top of the linen coverings and the headpiece. And it would soak through the coverings and into the body. They didn't have time for any of that because sun was coming down. So they get him in the tomb, get the stone. Saturday comes. The chief priests and Pharisees go to Pilate and ask for a guard to take and guard the tomb. Pilate gives them a guard. They go and guard the tomb. And then Sunday morning arrives, and they're going to go back, some of the women who have been following Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just have men disciples. He had women. Scripture tells us some of these women were wealthy, and they funded the entire ministry for those several years. And some of these women were going to go back on Sunday morning and finish the burial process that they didn't get to do because sun was setting on Friday evening. And so they go back Sunday morning, and that's where we're going to start looking this morning, at John chapter 20 in this moment. John chapter 20. If, if you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 906. It'll also be up here on the screens. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, take one of those Bibles home that's in the pew rack. That's all we got them. Everybody needs a Bible. And so if you don't have one, feel free to take one. We've got others we can replace that one with. Just take it with you. It's yours. John chapter 20, page 906, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So they go early in the morning, sun's just coming up, get there, stones rolled away, body's gone. Now I want you to focus on what Mary says here. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. This is going to be a constant refrain for her. She, she, she jumps to the conclusion and makes the assumption somebody stole Jesus' body. For her, that's the only explanation for how Jesus isn't in the tomb. And she says there, notice her words, she says, we do not know where they have laid him. The other Gospels tell us Mary Magdalene wasn't the only one there that morning. There were several women who went. And they run back and they get Peter and John. Uh, John ref always refers to him this way throughout his Gospel that he writes, the other disciple. And she goes to them and says, Jesus' body is gone. Now try to imagine, not just for Mary Magdalene, but also Peter and John, the panic that would have set in in that moment, in the midst of their grief. Jesus, whom they just buried, his body's been stolen, grave robbed. And so look what Peter and John do. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So they run, run through town, run outside of town, get to the garden, and they get to the tomb. And John gets there first. I mean, the panic, the shock, the horror that would have been in them. I imagine as they were running, them shouting, no, no, no. I remember getting a terrible phone call one time about a tragedy that had happened that they thought uh, this one young man had, had, had drowned, and he did. 
But I remember as I was leaving the house, Katie grabbed me and, and, and prayed for me. And then I jumped in the car and drove as fast as I could. And I can remember driving out to the lake, uh, praying as, as loud as I could. No, God, no, not now. No, it cannot be. No. Please don't let it be true. And so that's the way I picture James and Peter running, or John and Peter running to the tomb, shouting as they're running, no, it can't be true. No, don't let it happen. It cannot be. As they're running to the tomb, and John gets there first. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John gets there first, and he peeks in the tomb and, and sees, in fact, the body is gone. The, the, the linen wrappings that were over the body were over here, and the, the head covering is, is folded in a separate spot. And he's standing outside the tomb just peeking in. But look at Peter. Peter's got no breaks. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Peter comes barreling through and flies right into the tomb. And sees, yes, the body is gone. Clothes are over here, head coverings over here, all nice and folded up. And then John, sensing it's okay to go in now that Peter has, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. That's a really interesting phrase. You know, John is the one who wrote this gospel, and he says there at the end of verse 8 that he saw and believed. The only thing he could have believed is that Jesus had risen from the dead. In context, he believed Jesus had risen from the dead. He thinks if somebody really had stolen the body, why would they take the grave clothes off? It was a linen wrapping with that separate linen head. It was very expensive stuff. If somebody had really stolen the body, they would have tried to have gotten out of there as quick as possible before they were caught. They wouldn't have taken the time to untie all of the ties and, 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 and get the wrapping off and then take the body. They would have just taken it all. Taken the wrapping, taken the head covering, sold that stuff because it was expensive. And so he gets in there and it says he believes. He believes that Jesus rose from the dead. But he didn't quite understand what was going on. As he explains in that verse 9. He says they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't understand that all of this had been prophesied, that all of this was necessary. They didn't get it yet. He said, John says, I believe that he rose from the dead, but we didn't quite understand the implications that this was going to have for our eternity. But notice in verse 10, Peter and John don't immediately run to the other disciples and tell them Jesus rose from the dead. Peter and John, as we're going to see here in verse 11, don't even tell Mary Magdalene. John doesn't turn around and say, hey, Mary, I believe he rose from the dead. John just quietly goes home and doesn't tell anybody. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So Mary's weeping. So, so we see Mary returned with Peter and John to the tomb. After having found them and gotten them, she comes back. And she's weeping. The, the imagery here, she's, she, she, she's like kneeling and weeping uncontrollable. That's the idea of that kind of weeping. She, it's, it's overtaken her. And she stoops and she looks in. But what gets me of just about the whole scene, I mean, 
it wasn't just their friend who died, which is bad enough. I mean, their friend died in this terrible, terrible way, humiliating way, and his body has now been stolen. This is what they had wrapped their entire belief system in, Jesus being the Son of God. And they didn't understand that he was supposed to die to pay for their sins. They didn't get that yet. And so it's not just that her friend is dead that she's grieving. It's her entire belief system now has come crumbling down. So the situation went from bad to worse and then from worse to worst as they realize his body's not there. And her assumption is it's been stolen, been removed, desecrated. And she's in this terrible spot as she's there weeping. Look at verse 12. And she, as she looks in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And so you would think this moment, she looks in and sees angels sitting there that weren't there earlier. Remember, she was there earlier in the morning. There were no angels. There was just no body. But now she looks in and something's different. She saw Peter and John leave, and she looks in the tomb, and some people are there that should not be there. It's angels. And so if you were Mary Magdalene and you looked in the tomb, wouldn't your assumption be something supernatural is going on? Maybe he is alive. But that's not what Mary Magdalene thinks. She sees the angels and she asks them a question or makes a statement uh, in response to their question. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. So it's the same thing she said earlier to Peter and John. She sees angels, and they say, why are you weeping? Probably with great joy on their face. And her response is, his body's gone, and somebody stole it. She had already made a decision about how she thought this situation uh, was going to play out, about how she thought this situation, what it meant. And having already decided in her mind the way this situation should be explained, any new evidence to the contrary wasn't going to change her mind. She'd already made up her mind. You know anybody like that? It could be the most joyous thing they've ever seen in their life, but they've already jumped to the worst possible conclusion and nothing is going to change their mind. Let me rephrase that because that might get some of you in trouble. Do you ever think that way? You jump to the worst possible conclusion, and any new evidence to the contrary is not going to change your mind. You've already decided this is the way it's going to be. This is how it's all going to turn out. This is what all these circumstances mean and how they line up. They mean this one thing. So that Mary, in that way, sees angels in the tomb, talks to them. And she's already made up her mind that somebody stole Jesus' body, and so nothing is going to change her mind. Even what happens next. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. She sees him. He's standing right there. And she sees Jesus. She not only sees Jesus, she hears him. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She sees him. She hears his voice. But look at that next word, supposing. 
She made an assumption, not just about the situation and circumstance. She makes an assumption about who this is. She supposed that he was the gardener. And she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She's still stuck on this thing. Even talking to Jesus, even seeing Jesus, she's still stuck on this deal. If you took him, tell me where you took him. And I will take him and bury him again. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, she recognizes Jesus now. She saw angels, didn't realize the situation. She saw Jesus, didn't realize the situation. She heard Jesus' voice, didn't realize the situation. But when Jesus said her name, everything changed. And she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. And she, the, the, what, what, what comes next in context, the, the idea that we get is that she jumps at Jesus as though to hug his neck, as though to cling to his feet. Verse 17, Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, Jesus isn't being harsh to Mary Magdalene here, saying, don't touch me. There is a time to sit still in the presence of Jesus and praise him. But when Jesus gives us an assignment to do, we're supposed to do it and not just sit still not doing it. Jesus is not telling Mary, you can't ever touch me again. Because when he shows up to the disciples later that day and in a week, he, they touch him. Uh, but he says, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to go and tell the disciples about me. Basically, what he's giving Mary Magdalene is the first assignment as an evangelist. She's supposed to go and preach the gospel to the disciples. She's supposed to go tell the disciples the gospel, share the gospel with the disciples. And she goes and does that. We learn from another one of the gospels they don't believe her. But whether or not they believe isn't her job. Her job was just to do what Jesus said, which was to go and tell. And she did. She went and she told that Jesus was alive. Mary Magdalene. But what gets me in this whole section seeing Jesus, not recognizing him, was jumping to the conclusion that Jesus' body had been stolen. And that even seeing Jesus, seeing angels, talking to Jesus, it just didn't compute with her brain because she had already made an assumption about the way the situation was supposed to be. And that was detrimental to her. We do that all the time. Make assumptions about stuff. Jump to conclusions about stuff. Maybe we see somebody's post on social media and we jump to a conclusion about them and their character and who they are. Maybe we're in conversation with somebody and they're bad-mouthing somebody else and so we make an assumption about that somebody else because of what this person is saying. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Assumptions are dangerous. My dad used to tell me growing up, never make an assumption because it's your sinful mind assuming something about somebody else. So whenever I make an, a, a jump to a conclusion, I'm jumping, jumping to a sinful conclusion because I'm a sinful person. It's a dangerous way to walk around and live. If you want to assume something, assume the best about people. 
even if they're not the best people. Assume the best. Imagine how much more joy you would have if you walked around assuming the best. Or maybe assuming that social media and the news don't have your best interest at heart in how they report what other people do and what other people say. Assume the best. I remember being, I told you earlier about that young man who had drowned, and it was a big deal. The news came out there. I was the youth minister at the time of that church, and the news interviewed me. And I remember the first interview I gave, they cut out everything I said about Jesus because they only wanted to tell one story. So when the next news people came out, you know what I did? I put Jesus in every sentence. <laughs> so they weren't going to cut it out anymore. I learned. They don't have my best interest. They don't have the story's best interest. They want to tell the story they want to tell. When it comes to us and interacting with other people, it needs to all be all about Jesus. You may say, oh, but so-and-so did such-and-such. I know who they are. I know the kind of person that they are. You don't know their heart. And if you're going to prejudge somebody based on some assumption you've made, do you really want Jesus to judge you the exact same? Maybe judge you based on your worst mistake you've ever made in your life. I guarantee you, you don't. I don't. Never. I want eternal grace for me. <laughs> and so I need to give it the same that I've gotten it to anybody and everybody. And so here's Mary Magdalene having jumped to this conclusion, seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus. But Jesus continues to show her great patience, continues to show her great mercy. You know, Mary had come out here to the grave in what she thought was a moment to grieve. But Jesus had something else in mind. That reminds me of a story I came across a few months ago about a family who lived in the late 1400s, early 1500s, just outside of Nuremberg, Germany, a little town. This family had 18 kids. That's a lot. So that dad of that patriarch of that family worked 18 to 20 hours a day just to try to feed them all. And he would, on the weekends or days off, try to pick up odd jobs to make up the difference in the money. Well, there were two of these kids, young kids, that had a dream that was obscure, not just for that day and time, but particularly for this family that didn't have any money. Two of these kids, their names were uh, Albert was the older one, and Albrecht was the younger one. They wanted to be artists. In Nuremberg, there was a four-year art school. They wanted to be artists. They wanted to go, they wanted to paint, they wanted to sculpt. They wanted to carve with the hope that some family would buy their art, bring it to their home, have dinner parties, and show people their art, and they would influence dozens and dozens of people. And they talked about it every night going to bed. A bunch of them slept in, in the same room, and they would just talk over it, just about the kind of art they would create, how they would paint. They, they tried to paint as best they could with mud or whatever they could find, tried to develop their skills, wanted to get into that art school, but knowing that there's no way their parents would be able to afford it. And so they came up with a plan, an idea, as they grew older, that when they got old enough, one of them would go work in the mines to pay for the other one to go to art school. And when the other one got in art school, the other one would try then, the plan was, to sell the art so that 
they could save up and be able to get the first brother also to go to art school. And if that didn't work, at the end of art school, then they would graduate, and then that brother would go and work in the mines. So the other brother then could go to art school. That was the plan. And so they talked this over, night after night, going to bed, dreaming about their plan to be artists. And they tried to figure out which one of them was going to be the one to go to school. And they were of the heart that neither one of them said, oh, it's got to be me. The argument was, it's got to be you. And they would try to argue that way. No, Albrecht, it's got to be you. No, Albert, it's got to be you. And so they came up with this idea on the way back from church one day. They had a coin. They were going to flip it. And so when they got home from church, they flipped the coin. Heads, it was one brother. Tails, it was the other brother. And it turns out Albrecht, the younger brother, won the coin toss, and he was going to go to school. So that week, Albert, the older brother, got a job in the mines, went down there to work. Albrecht applied to art school, got in, moved to Nuremberg, and went to art school. And he was very adept at art. His art began to sell quickly, and he began to save money, save it and save it and save it. So at the end of his four-year term at that art school, his brother Albert could go. Well, he came home at the, after graduating. They had this huge dinner. Huge, anybody got big families? Big families are big deals. You say, who's all at your house? Oh, it's just my brothers and sisters. And so they have this big dinner, and it's, some of the town is there, but it's mainly family. And some of them have gotten older and gotten married, and they got kids of their own. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of people have come over to the family home, and they're having dinner to celebrate Albrecht graduating. And Albrecht, at the end of the meal, gets up and gives a little speech. Uh, and in his speech, all he talks about is the selflessness of his brother Albert, working for four years so that he can go to art school. All that Albert, Albert sacrificed for him to be able to do this. And he said, and now it's my turn to sacrifice. Now it's my turn to, to give so that Albert can go. And Albert can produce the art that he's been dreaming of for so long. And he looks down at the end of the table. And Albert's got his head in his hands. And he's weeping. After a moment, Albert stands up. And he says, no. He says, working down in the mines... These last four years, at one point or another, every bone in both of my hands have been broken at least once. He said, I tried not too long ago to pick up a brush to create a sculpture. And my hands are just too beat up that I don't physically have the skill anymore. I can't. And Albert turned and went in the house. You see, he had ended up sacrificing not just four years, not just money. He sacrificed his dream so that his brother could realize his. Well, after a moment, Albrecht leaves the dinner table and goes inside. And he hears a voice. And he looks in this room, and Albert is back there kneeling, praying with his hands before him folded. And Albrecht watches him pray for a moment. And inspiration strikes him. And he immediately goes out and draws his brother's hands in prayer. With the idea that he was going to use those hands in a painting at, at a later date. But he never got to, to 
finish that. But his drawing of his brother's hands folded, praying hands. Tony, why don't you go ahead and put up that picture? I'm sure you've seen this picture before. That's Durer's, his name, they were uh, Albrecht and Albert Durer, praying hands. He drew that in 1508. One of the most famous pieces of art in all of history. All because his brother sacrificed. His brother thought he was going to be an artist. His brother had planned to influence dozens and dozens of people through his art. But God had a different plan. God didn't intend for Albert to be the artist to create art that would influence dozens and dozens. God intended for Albert to be the subject of art that would inspire and encourage hundreds of millions of people throughout history. God's plan is always bigger than anything we can ask or imagine. And here at the tomb in, in John chapter 20, Mary thought she was there to mourn a death. Mourn a death in secret, mourn a death in private. But Jesus had her there to witness a resurrection so that then she could go and testify about that resurrection. That resurrection that has impacted billions of people. Jesus had a different plan for Mary Magdalene that day. She thought it was uh, her day was going to be one way, and Jesus had something else in mind. Jesus had something else uh, that he wanted her to do, to testify, to be a witness to the resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection wasn't just a cool miracle. Jesus' resurrection wasn't just something that, that, that we flippantly throw around. Jesus' resurrection changed the very nature of death. It changed it forever on that day. I mean, do you know why death happens? Death happens. Death occurs because of sin. Sin introduced death into the world. Because of sin, death exists. People die because of sin. Everybody dies because the world is broken. And sin has occurred. Death wasn't God's plan. Go back and read the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Death was not God's plan. Death occurs because of sin. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, in raising from the dead, he removed death's power. He removed sin's power and changed it forever in that moment. So from that moment forward, people were still going to die, but it wasn't going to be the same anymore. For the people who believed in Jesus, it was not going to be the same because all of its power had been removed from this point forward. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because it's been removed. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. We may still fear death. Some of us do because it's something we haven't experienced before. But I heard a preacher this morning explain it this way. If you and I, just me and you, were out in the yard and this big old bee comes out and the bee stings you but continues to fly around, is there any reason for me to fear that bee? Because if I look in, the, in your arm where the bee stung you, You've got the stinger. That bee can't sting me anymore. The bee is still flying around, but it's got no sting. That's the idea of death. Death is still there, 
But if you know Jesus, it has no sting. If you know Jesus, it has no sting anymore. For, for the Christian, death is really just a body exchange. You're taking this body that's broken. And you're getting one that can't break. No matter how many ladders you fall off of. You're getting one that will last forever. No expiration date. So for the Christian, death isn't the end. Death isn't punishment because that punishment's been removed. If you believe in Jesus, it's a body exchange and you're getting a new one. And if somebody has died before you that knows Jesus, it's just a time you're not going to see him. You're going to see him again. It's coming and it's going to come before you know it. Like a kid anticipating Christmas, it seems a long way off, but it's going to get here fast. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? For the Christian, for the, for the follower of Jesus, believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins, him raising from the dead, granting us life after death, granting us that new body after we die. For the Christian, we are immune to the effects of death and sin. Immune to it. It doesn't have the same power because it's got none. Death was a punishment. Death was there because of sin. Because Adam and Eve sinned and now we sin and death is the result of that sin. But when Jesus rose from the dead, all of its power is gone. There's no reason to fear anymore because it doesn't have a stinger anymore. So today, you're sitting in the green pews. You're watching online. If you don't know Jesus, I mean know him, you can know about him all day long. I mean, you live in American culture, people make jokes about Jesus raising from the dead, make jokes about Easter all day long. I saw some this morning on social media. People who don't know Jesus just cracking jokes. And if you don't know Jesus, we can't expect anything different. I can't say you shouldn't do that. You don't know any different. You don't know Jesus. You may know about him, but if you know him, know him like the disciples knew him as a friend. Know him as the Lord of lords. Know him. Really know him. Everything changes. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's got to be death and resurrection. You've got to believe both. Because if, if you just believe Jesus died... And for you, you believe he's still dead, then, he, then you don't believe he's the son of God. Then you don't believe sins are forgiven. You have to believe he rose from the dead. That's what I, I said earlier. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Him raising from the dead proves he's the son of God. Proves it. So will you believe that today? Not just think about it, not just know it off the top of your head like a cultural fact, but believe that it actually happened then your life changes forever. And you're a believer, you're a follower of God forever. You can't undo that. Let me say it in another way. You cannot lose your salvation. If you believe in Jesus, that cannot go away. See, what, what Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, is that his children, God's children, the ones who believe him, the ones who follow him, are in his hand. You're not stronger than God to pull yourself out of his hand. Not only that, if you believe in Jesus, here's the thing. 
there's nothing you can do to undo what Jesus already did. To lose your salvation, you would have to be stronger than God. You would have to be stronger than God. You would have to be more powerful than God. You would, the, the thing you did to lose your salvation would have to have more power than the death of Jesus. Spoiler alert, it does not. There's nothing you can do today, tomorrow, the next day that can undo what Jesus already did. It's done. It's settled. He died. He rose. It's over. Period. No comma at the end of that sentence. It's done. So if you don't yet believe in Jesus, I'm asking you now, will you believe in Jesus? Do you know how the end of the Bible, how it ends? Revelation chapter 22, it ends with an invitation. It says, come, all who are thirsty. Do you find that you're thirsty for eternity today? You're thirsty to be immune from death. You're thirsty for everything Jesus has to offer, for salvation, for hope in the middle of hopelessness, for purpose, for strength. Then what Jesus said at the end of Revelation, come then, come, believe then. Don't just wander around this life aimlessly. Find Jesus. Come down. What better day to believe in Jesus than Easter? Easter, celebration of his resurrection. Easter. 